I'm Rebecca Diem, the Digital Strategy and Communications Manager for The Word on the Street. This is Read the North, a show about Canlit, brought to you by your favorite neighborhood book festival. Canlit, of course, is Canadian literature. But Canlit wasn't always a thing. Like, we haven't always had an ecosystem that supported the publication, promotion, and sales of homegrown talent. It used to be a lot harder to seek out books by authors living in or writing about Canada. And to be an author? Except in the very odd case, you could pretty much forget about making it your livelihood. And you would have found it difficult to run a literary festival like The Word on the Street, focused on celebrating the work of Canadian and Indigenous authors, because, well, there was less to celebrate back in the day. Today, the literary landscape in Canada is very different. So how did we get here? What changed? Last episode, we looked back at the first-ever Word on the Street Festival in 1990 and the context surrounding its creation. And in this episode, we're traveling even further into the past, all the way to the early 1950s, and then journeying back to the present to try and answer the question of how Canlit came to be. For the first stage of this journey, we couldn't have asked for a better guide. All right. Um, can you tell me a bit more about yourself and your work? My name is Dick Mount, um, and I'm uh, the professor of English at the University of Toronto, downtown St. George campus, and I teach primarily Canadian literature. Nick is also the author of a book called Arrival, The Story of Canlet, which came out in 2017. In it, he chronicles the country's literary awakening in the mid-20th century and the impact of the 1951 Massey Report. The Massey Report was the largest cultural self-examination this country has ever launched. Um, it's early 1950s. Essentially what happened was the, the, the prime minister of the country got persuaded that after the Second World War, with increasing affluence and increasing concern about American cultural imperialism, though not yet a phrase they would have used, um, that the time had come to launch a cultural investigation into the, the nation. Like, what is the status of our culture? How are we doing in terms of, you know, both producing culture and consuming it? And so they created a commission and they sent, uh, I think there's four commissioners across the country on a two-year road trip into Canadian cities and asked them, people, well, anybody wanted to send us a, something in writing or show up and talk to us. It's huge. Thousands of people in every major Canadian city. Um, and then it was published as a report and made a number of recommendations. And the general consensus that we're, we're doing pretty good with the visual arts, actually. It looks like we have a number of painters that, that, that people recognize here and internationally. And we're doing not so bad with music. We're a little concerned about television, you know, because that appears to be something that's coming on the horizon. And, and it, there's rumors that there's communists working for the National Film Board. That, that's a worry. But the biggest worry was, was literature, that it had fallen behind, that it had just fallen behind the rest of the arts. And so what follows from that is the Canada Council for the Arts. What follows from that is provincial arts councils. What follows from that is writers in residence programs, at, you know, everything from community libraries to universities. So, yeah, that, that, that's the Massey Report. 
So in the story of Canlet, let's say the Massey Report is the inciting incident. Next, we need some rising action. And for that, to actually see Canlet really starting to emerge, we have to look at the classrooms of Canadian universities. In contemporary literature, Canadian contemporary, what I know most about, it changes constantly, and it always has, uh, you know, because you're, the syllabus is always having to adjust itself to make room for new voices, and that's the way it should be, uh, you know. Um, so, you know, starting in the, the big change in the 1960s and 70s was simply the introduction of Canadian writers to the classroom. Because prior to that, there are no dedicated classes in Canadian literature. And if you took a class in English at a Canadian university, the odds were very good that you would never read a single writer from your country. You read British writers, you read American writers. So that's that's the biggest change in the history of the syllabi in this country, is simply the introduction of writers from here. When you think of the Canlet industry, you probably think of publishers, bookstores, authors, maybe libraries. Your mind might not go straight to universities. But according to Nick, they can play a really huge role in establishing the long-term cultural legacy for an author or book. In terms of immediate sales of a book, I think in most cases, uh, university syllabi would, would not be a factor at all you know, or negligible. Um, there are rare exceptions to that rule. I, I would say the marrow, something like the marrow thieves, you know, just just the, the very rapid adoption of that book in both high school and university curricula. And 10 years before, much the same thing happened with Eden Robinson's Monkey Beach. Um, 50 years before that, much the same thing happened with Mordecai Richler's Duty Kravitz. There are a few books that get sort of instant buy-in by teachers. But by and large, I don't think that, you know, there's much of an economic impact from syllabi on, on writer publishers and certainly not on writers. Where the real impact comes is that long-term survival at this point happens in a university or it doesn't happen at all. The books that make it into classrooms are the ones we still talk about decades after their release. So when the syllabi began to change, it was a big deal. And the Massey Report was actually just one of several things driving that. The arrival of, you know, Canadian books and Canadian writers in Canadian university classrooms and high school classrooms briefly um, in the late 60s and 1970s was the product of a, it's kind of a perfect storm of a bunch of complex factors, most of them having to do with numbers. You know, for starters, just demographics, the size of the population, how much larger the population got in the 60s and 70s in Canada as around the world, the baby boom. Um, you know, and one consequence of that was a massive expansion of Canadian universities, like just unprecedented expansion of Canadian universities and colleges. See, all these new universities, all these new colleges, all these new students. And so there's room now for syllabi, for classes to teach, for new books to be brought in. That's one factor. The other number is, is the other number is, is dollars. Uh, you know, it's just, this is a period of unprecedented affluence in the history of the country. It's the first moment after the Second World War when, when you know, Canadians had enough money. It's not like they're rich. 
not by any stretch of the imagination, especially those working in the cultural sector, that they've never been rich and never will be rich. But it does become a time in which it's possible suddenly to think about, I mean, here's the simplest way to put it. Number of the writers that I interviewed for that book, when they went to universities in the 60s, they contemplated like not having a job. You know, they would just join a band, man, you know, or, or you know, or, or write poems and print them in a pamphlet and give them away. That thought would have been inconceivable to their parents, like simply inconceivable. You went to university to get a job if you went at all, you know, full stop. And that's what I mean by affluence. I don't mean, you know, people are rich. I mean that they, they have to, they've reached the point where they can do a few things with their, their time rather than, you know, cut trees down and swat mosquitoes, right? They, 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 you know, like. Mosquitoes aside, while the path they were pursuing may have been unconventional, the up-and-coming authors of the 60s and 70s still took their chosen profession seriously. Many are now household names, like Nobel laureate Alice Munro. And isn't there a big TV adaptation of a best-selling Canlet book right now? What's that author's name? If you know, you know. But with Canadian writing gaining respect and popularity, it was time for writers to get organized. It was time for a union. Tell me about the work of the Writers' Union of Canada. Uh, so the Writers' Union uh, is going to be 50 years old next year in 2023. So it started back in 1973. Um, there was a, a bunch of pre-meetings on people's porches. And uh, I think at Ryerson, there was a meeting. And then the first official meeting of the Writers' Union was 43 working authors in Canada, which was probably just about as many as there were. Um, getting together at uh, the Lord Elgin Hotel in in um, Ottawa, and uh, banging out like a constitution for the for the uh, union. But really, the the driving force behind the union was um, uh, networking and sharing information. So we had we had this really small population of professional authors in Canada. They'd all signed contracts with different publishers, but nobody knew what anybody else was making or what the terms of the contract were. And and so everybody kind of felt um, there was a screen between themselves and, and everyone else. And, and the writers union was was put together to sort of break down that screen and, and uh, let writers help writers uh, through the industry. So, yeah, I, I mean, the union has sort of grown up as the industry has grown up in Canada. Um, and I would say that in a, in a large part, we were a driving force for that sort of maturation. This is John Deegan, author, chair of the International Authors Forum in the UK, and most importantly for this story, executive director of the Writers' Union of Canada. As the union has matured, he's seen more and more people finding professional success. I, t I talked about how the the union started out as, um, as you know essentially people sitting around in a bar comparing contracts with each other uh, literally in the bar um, there's a story of Alice Monroe singing Danny Boy at the Lord Elgin uh, bar during the first uh, the first writers union meetings. oh my god uh, yes I know <laughs> I love to imagine it I was not there um, uh, so what was I saying? Yeah, so it, it started out as like comparing contracts, 
but the union has grown to do so much more. Um, so there's, you know, we do a lot of professional development and those events, uh, you, you came to one of those events. So I back did, when I did. That's in, where I met you person. the first time. Yeah, exactly. And, and so those events, not only are we uh, sort of expanding the knowledge base uh, for writing and publishing in Canada, but you're getting to meet people who are doing the, the job. And, and, and that in itself is an incredible encouragement. Can you tell me a bit more from your perspective um, about the growth of um, of Canadian writing? Yeah, well, I I mean, there's this sort of legend out there that there was this magical growth starting in the in the late '60s with the you know House of Anansi and Coach House and and uh, and uh, a really vibrant scene out on the West Coast as well um, of of new publishers uh, and and that it just sort of sprung out of the ground, you know, like, like wonderful mushrooms kind of thing. But really it was, it was the combined work of, uh, every part of the sector. So you had people opening bookstores all across the country and, and, uh, focusing on, um, on Canadian literature. There, there even used to be long lost, uh, uh, a, a bookstore on Bloor Street in Toronto that was only Canadian books inside, and it was uh, it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> we don't have it anymore, unfortunately. Um, but the union was was part of all of that, uh, uh, and and so were the funding agencies. You know, it's 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 almost like it's a it's almost like it's a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if if we didn't have all of the pieces, then you wouldn't get the the full picture. And 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 uh, so everyone was involved in this. Uh, what I guess we call this uh, amazing flowering of of uh, Canadian literature. And it's gotten to a point now where uh, it's so much easier for us to not just sell to our own market, which is relatively small, but to cross our border and sell into the larger markets like the United States and, uh, and England. And, and once you do that, I think as a, as a national literature, uh, you become a global literature and you become a, a bit of a force. And I think Canada is, if not already over that line, we are standing looking over that line. This feels like the right time to draw your attention to one specific puzzle piece that John mentioned the funding agencies. Yeah, definitely one of the very important jigsaw puzzle pieces. Uh, crucial, actually. Let's call it a, uh, a corner piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need if, to get those if, corner pieces If you pieces enjoy first. jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> I don't think it's an overstatement to say that public funding makes the Canlet industry possible, especially given the raw materials we're working with. I mean... You have to you have to look at, at Canada in in sort of from a business perspective. You know, it's a huge country, giant geography, um, uh, relatively small population, so a relatively small book buying market. Books are heavy. Um, the highways are long. It's, there's a great distance between bookstores um, and the publishing centers. Uh, so it's an it's an expensive venture. And uh, I would say without public funding, it would be an impossibly expensive venture for the size of the market that we have. So how did we end up with such a robust public funding infrastructure? Well... So it all stems from the Massey Report in the 1950s. As you might recall, the Massey Report recommended the creation of both federal and provincial arts councils, which act as funding bodies for artists across the country. And the basic philosophy behind all of it is very different from capitalism. 
instead of giving a large amount of money to one to the you know one or two publishers or five or six writers let's give small amounts of money to a large number of writers and publishers and you know that that what that means is that sometimes a lot of that goes to waste but sometimes a lot of it pays some pretty massive fruit you know uh, Margaret Atwood got two Canada Council grants in her entire career. It would be under five or six thousand dollars. But with that five or six thousand dollars, she wrote four books, you know, among them surfacing, survival, power of politics. Like those are those are pretty big books still. Um, and so in terms of investment, oh my God. I talked about this with Jesse Wenty, the current chair of the Canada Council. This idea of the dollar value of the grant versus what it's worth in output versus what it's worth in less tangible terms. It's something we'd both thought about a lot. Him because he's the chair of a body that gives out these grants. And me because, well. I, I just want to talk about that for a second because like the scale of, like, um, I don't know if you know this, but, but I'm a Canada Council grant recipient. And, Congratulations, uh, well done. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and I was just floored by it. Honestly, um, I applied for a grant like right before the pandemic began. Um, and then September of 2020, like the worst year of my life, I get this email saying that my, the grant was awarded and I was not expecting it. Um, and you know, it was $25,000, but it was, which doesn't seem like, like it's, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. But in terms of like the broader arts funding, $25,000 is not a lot, you know, mm. like that is like, you know, half a year salary for someone doing like the most basic job on like a movie production set. Right. Like that's, it's very, it's a very small amount. And yeah. yet it was life changing because it meant that I could afford to invest in an apartment um, of my own. It meant that I could invest in therapy to get through the worst year of my life and invest in taking the time to like write the best book that I am capable of and, and kind of ride through that like really tumultuous period in which it was very difficult to create. Hmm. So like, you know, it might be a small individual investment, but the, the outsized impact that saying, I have faith in you and I believe in your ability to contribute to this broader conversation. It's immeasurable for individual artists and, and authors. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. that I mean, that is, I think, a, a wonderful story and I'm so thrilled for you. And <laughs> I would also say, I think that's, you know, that's what we... That's that's why anyone who works at an arts funding body does does it because no one's getting rich uh, on either side of this equation typically, um, but we do it because it does it can make a difference and and just to say from the other side that little that, and I don't disagree that's not a huge investment it is it is small and I wish we always wish that there could be more and I, we fight for that. But I would also say the other thing is that small investment, you could very well write a book that changes the world. I mean, I think the book is going to change the world. There you go. Plus it's not, I would also view it not just as about this book. Yeah. Because it's about investing in, in you 
as an artist in the, in, in the long term of things, right? It's about, I don't even, the hope is for me anyway, that you are able to create whatever it is you want to create and change the world in whatever way that is going to change the world. And for you to be fulfilled doing that. And I see it on really the most human terms. Like it's just about, it's because it's, we invested in that one project, but it's, it is an investment in you, you, that's it. And, and I wish, uh, I wish we lived in a society and a culture who wouldn't require everyone to do a grant application for that investment. Because the reality is whether you're engaged in arts or not, because let's take it even further back for a second. Um, humans are so valuable, you know, as just as, as beings that exist on this world, whether you're an artist or whatever it is you do. Um, and even let's step even further back. I don't even care what you do. I just care that you be. And so, and I wish we had societies that invested in us being and not necessarily in us doing and didn't react necessarily to when when we did things that would react instead to us just being. We don't. And, and you know, even as chair of Canada Council of the Arts, I can advocate for those things and, I, and we do. But it's not like I'm in a position to bring that necessarily about by myself. But it's about, I do see arts funding as a way to build that capacity because stories is ha- is so fundamental to the human species it's it's we don't exist outside of story uh we are the storytelling animal it's it is our gift and it's through that storytelling that maybe we can achieve those sorts of ideals that that others can find themselves in your work and other people's work and maybe allow themselves to be a little bit to feel it in that way to be connected, to connected. in that way. Yeah, yeah to yeah. be connected. Speaking with Jesse about this and hearing his insights was, well, inspiring. Inspiring is actually a huge understatement. I was in a daze after that interview, filled with aspirations and hopes and dreams, for myself, of course, but mainly for the future of our industry. When you speak with Jesse, you believe in that hopeful future. And public funding in the literary industry and everything it makes possible goes beyond just writers. The government also funds festivals like The Word on the Street. And although they were a little slow on the uptake, they eventually made funding available to publishers too. Nick again. In fact, uh... Coach House Press here in Toronto, which was one of the, the very first recipients of a, of a grant for, for a publisher, they only got it because they basically lied to the government and said, you know, it was they, they disguised it as a grant for writers. And, and that's how Stan Bevington managed to get Coach House, the first grant for an English Canadian publisher. So they were kind of slow. But once they got into the game, they did these things called block grants. And there's money that went to publishers. And the consequence of that is, is publishers that having to realizing that they don't have to make their final decision entirely about the bottom line. And the need for that public support has only grown. 
Here's Alana Wilcox, the current editorial director of Coach House. Coach House couldn't exist without public funding. Uh, our competition are large conglomerates not owned by Canadian companies, and they have endless capital behind them, as well as the capacity to, say, publish Jordan Peterson books that make <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, so without the support that the government provides to us, we, we simply couldn't compete with that. But with it, with it, we're able to. And, you know, I think increasingly indie publishers are recognized as, um, you know, finding incredible talent and sustaining it and keeping, keeping it alive out there in the world. Um, the funding also enables us to keep our book prices a little more manageable. You know, most countries in the world pay a lot more for books than we do here in Canada. And that's partly motivated by being across the border from America where book prices are very low because they have such a huge population and the economies of scale really work in their favor. For us here, you know, our, our book prices should really be higher for the industry to be sustainable, but we can't really do that because American prices are so low. So the public support helps to keep book prices affordable for uh, more readers. Both for publishers like Coach House Books and individual writers, the support provided by government funding bodies can make or break their participation in the industry. Arts councils are shaping Canadian culture through their funding decisions and who they do or do not offer financial support to. They have a lot of power. This dynamic is something that Jesse Wente, as chair of the Canada Council, has had to navigate. I've devoted my entire career to the arts and cultural sector of Canada, whether as someone who administers it or participates or covers it. Um, so, you know, I think from, um, you know, arts and culture is clearly a, a, a significant part of my interest in life. Um, and I think in Canada, of course, um, arts and cultural funding is pretty intrinsic to how culture is created and formed and expressed. And, um, and so for me, you know, I think in general, uh, I'm always interested in the larger systems of why things are and arts funding bodies are part of the systems for why things are, you know, Canada council was founded in 1957. Right. And, and, you know, there was a major, sort of report that helped found around the, 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 the Massey report, you know, around the need for a bolstering of Canadian culture, quite frankly, a need for defining or creation of Canadian culture. We have to remember Canada, Canada is a very young country. And so it's still, it's culture is still very much, um, happening and sort of in process, even as we sit today, let alone in 1957, when the country wasn't even a hundred years old. Um, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm somewhat privileged as an Anishinaabe person. Our people have been here for 13,000 years. So we, 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 we can say, you know, it's new. Uh, and so it's still growing and, and developing. And, um, and, and the Canada council was clearly meant to foster that, um, it did. So I, I think everyone there would admit imperfectly in terms of it didn't always, well, let's be blunt. Like it was a colonial, it was a tool of, of colonialism in terms of ex expanding Canadian culture. It, it generally kept out indigenous artists. Um, it pretty much also kept out other racialized communities, uh, for many, many years. Um, in more recent times, it's taken 
you know, fairly significant steps to correct those uh, things. And, um, you know, including the creation of the CKS or the Creating, Knowing, and Sharing program, which is an Indigenous-created program at the Council Indigenous-run program for Indigenous peoples. And I do think that there is not there is a correlation. I wouldn't necessarily be the one with the statistics or the data to show this, but it certainly seems to me since funding bodies have started to create more dedicated Indigenous funding streams, which again, let's be honest, is maximum maybe 10 years old. Like it's, this is not a new phenomenon. I don't think it's coincidence that you have seen an explosion in output and awards and all of that. I think that coincides with a historical need for these stories and a need for stories from all marginalized communities that I think the larger population has felt more recently uh, meaning they feel the need for them. Uh, we've, I think we've always felt the need, <laughs> our communities, but I think the broader community is suddenly, not suddenly, but I think over time, <laughs> certainly not suddenly, but over time has realized it's missing part of its own story. And so you've seen, I think, audiences of all kinds for all sorts of art forms make that leap. We started this episode with an inciting incident, the Massey Report. And then we've had the rising action of the writers' unions and funding for writers and publishers. And we've even had a few flashbacks. So what's next? Are we at peak Canlet? Have we passed it? Real life is rarely as tidy as its fictional counterpart. But I think it's clear that the story of this place began long, long ago. And it is far from over. There's been tons of progress since the 1950s. But like Jesse said... There's still a lot to correct and change for the better. New voices are joining the conversation every day, expanding our literary and cultural universe, and also giving new context to previously written chapters. This is a never-ending story. And isn't that just the best? Still, if you're looking for a feel-good ending, because who isn't? I can offer you one last really hopeful thing Jesse shared. There was a meeting recently the Canada Council had of um, uh, new—well, they said new arts leaders. I mean, I'd known many of them for 20 years, but it was um, leaders new to their position at their various organizations. And here's what I would say, Rebecca, is I looked at these folks, and they did not look like the arts leaders of even five years ago. This was a very different—it was a Zoom room— Granted, but it was a very different room than, than I remember attending the Banff Art Summit in 20, I guess, 17 or 16 and thinking of that room versus the one I was in on Zoom, radically, and many of the same institutions, but radically different. And I think those folks, given, because often what I think of what the Canada, Canada Council sort of does is invest in space as much as people, it invests in you to have the space to go write your book. And we inv invest in organizations to sometimes literally have a space or those things. And I was just thinking like, look at these people who've come to take these jobs during a pandemic when, when no one knows like anything about much of anything. And we're all trying to figure out how we're going to do, share these stories again, dream together again. But when I saw that circle, 
I knew that the dreams were going to be different in the coming years and that the possibilities, the tangible reality that those dreams would then um, give birth to would, would be the midwife too, um, means that like the Canadian culture of the future isn't the Canadian culture of our past. And that is something to be thrilled about. The Canadian culture of the future isn't the Canadian culture of our past. I love the way Jesse frames this as a dreamscape that we all share in creating. In our next episodes, we're going to take a closer look at more of the corner pieces that make up this canlit puzzle. First, the publishers and how a book is made. Then, libraries and bookstores and how we access books. And finally, authors and readers and how we connect with each other. And when all these pieces come together, I think we're well-positioned to create a canlet that is worth dreaming about. That's it for this episode of Read the North. It was hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced by Quentin Bradshaw, who also mixed and edited the show. Scoring was by James Ellerkamp. If you want to learn more about the history of Canlet, Nick's book, Arrival, the Story of Canlet, is a wealth of information. And if you'd like to read more of Jesse Wente's thoughts on storytelling, representation, and Indigenous narrative sovereignty, he also had a book out last year, the best-selling Unreconciled Family, Truth, and Indigenous Resistance. To find out more about the work the Writers' Union does, you can look them up at writersunion.ca. And for more information about grants available through the Canada Council, check out their website, canadacouncil.ca. Also, a quick plug. As of this episode's release, we are just under a month out from the 2022 Word on the Street Festival. This year's festival will be hitting the streets of Queen's Park North on June 11th and 12th, and we are so excited. For full lineup details, head over to toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca or follow us at TorontoWOTS on Instagram and Twitter. Read the North is a co-production of The Word on the Street Toronto and CJRU 1280 AM. For more excellent audio programming, check out CJRU.ca. This series was made possible by funding from the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with another episode next week. weird bits that an anecdotes that I remember about it is that at the time when the Massey Report, the Traveling Roadshow went out, the big concern that they had in terms of optics was that people would, would read the Massey Report as an attempt to impose Toronto culture on the rest of Canada. Culture, you know? So like the worry was that, you know, that in the farmlands that oh my God, they're going to make us listen to jazz and classical music. They actually strategized about this. Like, how are we going to deal with this? And so one of the things they did in response, Hilda Neatby, she was one of the commissioners. She would give press conferences and she would talk about her ability to milk a cow. 
And this is a woman with like three PhDs, you know, she's a university president, you know, and she's like, but I can milk a cow just to offset concerns that it was going to be the imposition of, of highbrow culture on the rest of the country. 